Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 252, Foundations of Jewish Life. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And first of all, we want to wish you a happy Hanukkah. This episode of Judaism Unbound is being released on the morning of the first day of Hanukkah. That means we lit the first candle of Hanukkah last night, and we had the first gathering of our Judaism Unbound Jewish Live Gelt Razor Extravaganza eight-night Hanukkah event last night. Since we're starting a unit on philanthropy today, it would be remiss of me not to suggest that you still have a chance to share some of your Hanukkah gelt with us. We're only asking for $36. We had a great time last night. We're really excited to have seven more nights of Hanukkah together. It happens at all different times. So if you want to be with your family in the evening, most of the events are at other times. So check it out. Go to www.geltraiser.com. That's G-E-L-T razor.com. Or you can just head to the judaismunbound.com homepage and click on the link to the Gelt Razor and you can see all the details. So now let's shift into the topic of our interview today, which appropriately enough is philanthropy. Now you might think that philanthropy means giving money, but in the original Greek, it means love of humanity. And so it's a question that we're going to explore. What does that love of humanity look like when translated into dollars and cents? And like many series on Judaism Unbound, we're not just looking at the topic just so we can learn a little bit more about it. We're constantly on the hunt for the big ideas that we think we should be grappling with as we imagine a Jewish future that's very different from the Jewish past. And like it or not, a lot of that comes down to money because it comes down to whether or not there's going to be money for new experimentation and new ways of being Jewish. If there is going to be money for that through philanthropy, through organized giving, let's say, then bigger experiments might be able to be tried. If the money isn't really there for that kind of high-risk, high-reward type of innovation, then maybe we need to explore another way, such as doing things on small scales with our own families that don't require a lot of outside funding. And during this series, we're going to explore a number of ways that people have been giving money or are giving money to Jewish organizations, especially the more innovative and experimental Jewish organizations. So today we are really pleased to welcome Aaron Dorfman, the president of Lipman Camphor Foundation for Living Torah, which has been one of the funders of our work. And as I'm about to introduce the foundation, I think you'll be able to understand why based on the way they describe themselves and based on what you know about our work at Judaism Unbound and Jewish Live. Lipman Camphor Foundation for Living Torah is a private foundation founded by the Lipman Camphor family. Lipman Camphor Foundation for Living Torah provides and supports, quote, Living Torah, Judaism as a powerful, evolving wellspring of accumulating wisdom and sensibilities that enriches people's lives and helps create a better world. The foundation is also continuing the Lippmann Kanfer family's commitment to strengthening the ecosystem for innovation in the Jewish community and to the pursuit of justice. 
Now, I'm going to read more about the foundation's self-description because it's extraordinary to hear a foundation describing itself with language that we might otherwise be more used to seeing a Jewish organization using to describe itself. Our purpose is to repair and enrich the world through thriving Jewish life. We believe that Judaism is a dynamic, evolving force in ongoing dialogue with the world around it, and that it brings a powerful vocabulary of accumulating wisdom to this conversation. We call this wisdom Living Torah. We believe that Living Torah can inspire and guide Jews and fellow travelers from all backgrounds to live more meaningful lives and to act to repair and perfect the world. So we hope that we are part of that world. We want to be part of that world. I think the foundation thinks we're part of that world because we have gotten some grants from them, and we are very grateful for those. So let me now welcome Aaron Dorfman, the president of the foundation. Prior to becoming president of Lippmann Camphor Foundation for Living Torah, Aaron Dorfman spent 10 years as part of the leadership team at American Jewish World Service, AJWS, organizing and mobilizing American Jews to channel their philanthropy, volunteer time, and political power to support global human rights. And prior to that, he spent nine years designing and leading informal education programs at Temple Isaiah, a synagogue in the San Francisco Bay Area. He is a member of the Safety Respect Equity Advisory Board and a founding board member of Repair the World, a nonprofit committed to promoting service in the Jewish community. Aaron Dorfman also served on the board of Coney Island Prep in South Brooklyn. Aaron Dorfman, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. Thanks for the invitation. Excited to be here. So I remember when I met you years ago, I think you were working at the American Jewish World Service. I say that only because you're not somebody who went to college for philanthropy work. You're somebody who came to it around about five years ago, I think. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what you found in making that transition into running a Jewish foundation that you think is important for the regular folk among us who have not yet made that transition to understand. I certainly never had uh, a vision of myself as a um, Jewish philanthropist that didn't show up on my 10th grade school, you know, career survey alongside firefighter and space shuttle pilot. You know, the transition from AJWS in, in a way made a lot of a lot of sense because the work that I did there, which was really at the intersection of Jewish social justice and education is essentially the same work that I do at Lippmann Canfer uh, in a different kind of a venue. I think probably the biggest piece of learning that I brought over with me was AJWS's approach to grant making, uh, which AJWS is an intermediary, an intermediate grant maker, and deeply focused on humility in grant making partners with hundreds of grassroots nonprofits in the global South and really follows their lead. Uh, the education that I got from doing that work has really informed the work that I do at Lemon Camper, trying very much to be a, a listener to and follower of the people who are on the ground doing work in social impact organizations. So can you give us a little bit of a primer, let's say about the way that foundations, Jewish foundations work? I mean, to the extent that you know anything at all about it, you you know that you send in a grant proposal of some kind and something happens, either you're funded or not funded. But I imagine there's a lot that goes on in the black box that would be interesting to, to understand as far as how are decisions made? What are the 
What are the approaches that a foundation might take to assessing what they want to fund? Particularly, I mean, and to the extent that you know, the um, the foundation where you work, Lipman Camphor Foundation for a Living Torah, is a family foundation. And there are other kinds of foundations as well. I'm, I'm wondering whether you think that they work similarly or differently. Uh, you know, there's a truism that gets attributed to Jeff Solomon that if you know one foundation, you know one foundation. And well, I think that that's not totally true. It is a, in a lot of ways true. So, I'll, I mean, I'm happy to speak specifically about um, Lit McCamper Foundation for Living Torah. And then I think we can extrapolate from from there to some other places where I think there are some analogies. Um, at Lipman Canfer, you know, we've got a pretty well-defined mission, which is to help people apply Jewish wisdom to universal human questions. Um, that's our that's our business. It's our bread and butter, and we spend a lot of time thinking about where, uh, what, what kind of universal questions, universal human questions, uh, uh, lend themselves to the Jewish wisdom tradition, uh, how to be a good parent, how to be a good citizen, uh, how to be an activist, how to support climate justice, all kinds of things like that. And so our, uh, the, the, the grant making piece of our work, which is one part of our work, happy to speak about other parts as well, but uh, is a lot about trying to understand what the zeitgeist calls for, uh, and then a combination of proactive outreach to social impact organizations to say, you know, you're, you're doing something that we think resonates with our mission, or hearing from them when they come across the transom with an idea, um, and vetting and uh, and then matchmaking, right? It's a it's a it's a kind of collaborative, constructive exercise. Uh, the staff is a force multiplier. The the family are obviously deep experts in the mission and highly connected and highly engaged in a broad array of, of work in the in the American Jewish community. And they're also running a large family business and engaged in a whole bunch of other institutions and uh, and efforts in the um, in their broader lives. Uh, and they've recruited and hired and delegated to a staff. Though I'd say the role, the word that comes to mind for me is the role of interpreter. Right, we're in the business of partnering with them to understand and interpret the mission that they've set out for the foundation, and then engaging in kind of the other direction with social impact organizations and other funders to try to interpret in that direction what's what's actually happening in the environment that we're operating in so that we can build connections, look for opportunities to be generative and creative in bringing that mission to life. I got to start because you brought up that you you didn't as a, as a young child think, ah, I want to be a philanthropist. I, my family has a story, actually. My dad's best man at his wedding. When he was growing up in middle school, he would be asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he would always say, or at least he said once, you never know with these kinds of stories. He would always say, I want to be a philanthropist because I've never known one who didn't do great. So, anywho, I'm interested in a few broad questions as we open up this window into Jewish philanthropy over the next bunch of weeks. I'm curious in particular about what it is. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about how Jewish foundations might be structured. Um, I love that you kicked off with that aphorism of Jeff Solomon, because I find that when I'm talking with folks from Jewish foundation, it comes up. That, that specific aphorism. It, it, and I don't, I'm not saying that to like throw shade. It's just like really one of those quotes that gets 
thrown into conversation a lot. And I want to ask, like, is that because it's in reaction to a general presumption by people like me who don't know things about Jewish philanthropy? They're like, oh, yeah, like I go to Jewish stuff and there's like names that are thanked. Um, and they're often, yeah, the, the Schusterman Family Foundation, the Bronfen Foundation, the Marcus Foundation, the Lippmann Camper Foundation, like they all blur together in our mind. They're like the set of things that give money to Jewish stuff that I'm at sometimes. And they become like one in people's heads. And so that quote becomes important, right? Because they're not actually all the same. But I also want to poke and say like, to many people out there, they experience these things and their impact on their lives, at least they think they experience those things and their impact on their lives as part of a unified system. And so I'm curious what the characteristics of that system are, even if it's not really a system. Um, we, we talk on the show all the time about how Judaism might not even be a system. So we're fine with saying it's, it's not really one coherent whole. But to the extent that it is, like, what is Jewish philanthropy? What are some of the different ways that people go about defining it? And then sort of from those answers, how does it go into the decision making around grants and everything else? Well, I'll for sure agree that Judaism isn't a single unitary thing. <laughs> you get like you had me at hello with that. And I want to go back actually before I before I speak to the question, Lex, I want to go back to the the your your line at the beginning. I didn't say uh, I never want I never imagined that I would be a philanthropist. And I, I said I'd never I'd never imagine I'd be a foundation professional. Oh. And, I, and I bring that up for a very particular reason, which is that uh, I think one of the things that's important to sort of demystify about Jewish philanthropy is that uh, you're right, we've created this kind of monolithic hegemonic thing called Jewish philanthropy that we imagine is uh, uh, a um, maybe centralized unitary source of money fuel, right, for the running of the social impact sector and power that is other. But Jewish tradition, I think, has a really, really clear expectation that we're all philanthropists, right? Like there's a tzedakah imperative that suggests that we're all supposed to be in that game of moving money around to ensure that the, the social needs that we have get met. It turns out that some people have a lot more of that money than some other people, but there isn't a, there isn't just like 12 people in a room doing philanthropy. Like we're all, we're all in the mix. We're all in the game. That being said, you know, the Jeff Solomon line is probably you're right. A little bit of an attempt on the part of the Jewish foundation world to, to create some of that differentiation, right. To not be the hegemonic monolithic story of power because Foundation, and I'd say foundation professionals in particular, uh, are like are are living inside of a principal agent problem. They are the representatives of uh, boards. Sometimes those boards are families. Sometimes those boards are are professional boards, uh, and they have to uh, again. I'll go back to that that language of interpretation. They have to interpret the the interests that those boards have, and they're not equally powerful. They are not the ultimate deciders. And so by kind of complicating the narrative that philanthropy is some unitary thing, and those of us who, you know, staff foundations have godlike power to make determinations about which programs get the resources that they need and which ones don't, 
I think we're trying to signal that that story isn't um, isn't comprehensive or, or entirely accurate. First of all, I'm thinking, you know, I, and I promise we didn't mean to get stuck on this the quote from Jeff Solomon, but I think it's an interesting one because where I would take it next is like, is that a good thing, right? Is it a good thing that if you know one foundation, you only know one foundation or given the amount of power that foundations and maybe other wealthy individuals have, although usually I think that work at a very, very high level of funding that's actually moving the needle a lot is happening through foundations. And so I guess the question is, would it be better if there was some kind of uh, approach, if you could ask, how do Jewish foundations do this work? And everyone's, well, here's how they do it. This is it. It's predictable. We know, we understand. Uh, and I think that the downside to that would be that if they're all making a mistake, then that mistake is is happening across the board. So there's some advantage to foundations having different approaches. So I guess at the end of the day, I have a you know two-part question, which is, first, I'm thinking about how the... People who work at a foundation are a little bit like us in the sense that you get a wide perspective on a lot of things that are going on. Not that many people have such a wide perspective. So I think it's interesting to be able to have a conversation. And with you, it's both a conversation about what's going on in the foundation world and also a conversation about what's going on in the world of Jewish organizations that might help us see where it's working well and where maybe there's some blind spots on one side or the other that could potentially make things work better. In particular, I'm thinking about, not that I want to talk specifically about COVID, but I think this is an interesting, this year has been an interesting test case in terms of, is our system working well to deal with changes that are surprising? There's a real trade-off, and, and I'm not a historian, so I'm going to offer an observation that's, uh, you know, the the the, the layperson's observation about what seems like a historical uh, a historical phenomenon that that I've been inside, so I'm you know deeply subjective about. I uh, I think one of the things that characterizes the evolution of Jewish philanthropy over the last 50 years, this is a, you know not a um, it's not a novel observation, is the transition from federated giving to much more decentralized, uh, small foundation, large foundation giving that's that's not federated, uh, not kind of consolidated in federations. And that, uh, that shift um, has certainly made the process more mystifying. It has reified Jeff Solomon's observation. Instead of there being one federation in town and one door to knock on and one committee that you had to appear in front of, there are now dozens and dozens of foundations that are potentially resources that can, that can support work. That has happened to correspond with an absolute explosion in the variety and um, diversity of Jewish social impact organizations. Why? Because I think, again, not a historian, because uh, people are able to pitch to lots of different audiences in lots of different ways. You can make an argument that that's more inequitable, it's less efficient, it's, uh, you know, power is concentrated in, uh, in fewer hands, although in more centers, right? Fewer hands, but more centers. I don't know, like, I think the dust hasn't settled on, on whether that's the, the advantages uh, that, that sort of trade-offs from that kind of United Way model versus this much more decentralized model, like the jury's out. Shout out for those who do want to do a deep dive into the last 50 and even beyond years of Jewish philanthropy. Um, our episode with Lila Corwin-Berman a number of weeks back is a great window into some of exactly what you just talked about and also some other interrelated things. Um, so I I do want to open up 
I mean, we're going to go back and forth, but I want to open up like the Lippman camp for specific lines of questioning as we explore sort of the broad, what is Jewish philanthropy, big picture kinds of questions too. And I think that they work in tandem in a number of ways. One is Lippman Camper Foundation on that front of the last 50 years. I mean, we talk about it all the time as a shift from federated giving to decentralized, which is true. But along with that is a shift from localized federations, because federations are in a place, in a specific place. And family foundations, some of them are also thinking of their role as local and in a particular place. But a lot of them, including Lippmann Camphor, are not only local to a place. I, I'll mention, I know that Lippmann Camphor does exceptional work in Akron, Ohio, specifically where its family, some of its family lives. And I benefited from that personally um, in a, a year I spent in Akron. But in general, Lippmann Camphor is looking at, sort of at a national scope across the country. And I say national intentionally as opposed to international, though you probably do some work that is to some extent international too, because I know that for you, the context of America specifically is very important. And so I want to bring that up because that matters a lot, this shift not just from federated to decentralized, but actually local to, I don't know, beyond local, national or international. And it matters a lot in our context, because we're here in this digital universe that I don't even know, are, are we local to a new geography that we would term like the internet such that there could be like a Jewish federation of the internet? I've actually thrown that around sometimes. I think it wouldn't be a ludicrous idea to have such things, to have JCCs of the internet, to have all of those different kinds of organizations that live in that local quote unquote geography. Or is it actually one example of a national or international geography. And that's why we see a lot of the foundations doing work in the internet and in digital Jewish spaces where like my local federation in Providence does not perceive its role, rightly or wrongly, it could be right. They they don't perceive their role as like seeding, S-E-E-D, the Jewish internet. Foundations could potentially see that as a role. So basically all that's to say, there's a lot of trends that are underneath what you just described, not only sort of structural in how foundations are structured versus federations, but also in how Jewish communities, Jewish organizations are even looking in different eras. And so I'd love to hear from you how Lippmann Camphor approaches that. And I have a suspicion that this links into how Lippmann Camphor conceptualizes its role in the American context. And so if you can open up that window to some extent for us, I think that would be really useful because you're doing interesting work there. So I think, I mean, I think it's a great observation. You're right. It's not only structural, it's also geographic. It's also thematic, right? Like so much of the diversification of the Jewish social impact sector of the Jewish philanthropy sector are tied up in trends like the collapse of distant of, of geographic distance as a major delimiter of life. Although I'd say the last year when we've lost, maybe, maybe it's not an although, I'd say the last year in which we've lost a lot of plane travel and have supplanted it with Zoom travel, uh, you know, suggests that this this is a this is still very, very evolving and and uh, unresolved space. And I think the adaptation of the, the social impact sector, I mean, well beyond the Jewish community and the philanthropic sector to this to those phenomena is uh, 
um, like continues to unfold. So for us uh, at Lippmann Camp Foundation for Living Torah, the, the, you're right, the lens is not a, a, a geographic one, it's a thematic one. As I mentioned before, we've, we've chosen this lane in which to operate. Uh, it's a distinctive lane. We're not focused on what I would call not pejoratively parochial Jewish issues, like um, how to ensure that people raise Jewish kids or marry Jewish partners or have a particular kind of a relationship with the state of Israel. We're concerned with bringing the Jewish wisdom tradition to bear on uh, universal questions. You know, that's a, I'll acknowledge, sort of esoteric, but really important uh, arena that a local federation might not have the capacity or interest to focus on. So there's a real advantage for us in being a small, medium-ish, nimble national organization that can pursue what we think of as a really, really important niche agenda uh, in a way that can, you know, not only serve the needs of a lot of people, but also add value to the national conversation about what's important, right? What's important for Jewish philanthropy? What's important for Jewish social impact organizations? So in that context, I mean, I'll speak specifically to the, to the question about our work on um, democracy and civic engagement. Coming out of the 2016 election, we were pretty clear. We had a, we had a board meeting the day after the 2016 election, and uh, we were like many people in America, a bit shell-shocked about what had just gone down um, and felt like, uh, look, if we're in the business of helping people apply Jewish wisdom to universal human questions, here's a whopper staring us in the face, right? Like what, what is our role in our role as, as Jews in supporting the democratic norms and institutions in this country upon which we as a community depend? And that was a question I think that uh, framed in that way, not a lot of other people were asking. Uh, and, you know, over the last three and a half years, we've put a lot of time and resources and energy in trying to focus uh, some of our grantees, fellow funders, um, you know, a lot of discourse on this question of what is the, what is the responsibility of the American Jewish community to support the democracy that, again, is the, is the water in which we swim? I'd love to pursue more deeply this question of what is Jewish philanthropy or what ought it to be. It's something that I've thought about a lot that I've been annoyed about when wealthy Jews are criticized for, quote, not supporting Jewish causes when they're giving their money to universities, hospitals. What is the point of Judaism if not ultimately to support hospitals and, you know, democracy and all those kinds of things. And so it feels to me like not only is that problematic because it sort of misunderstands Judaism, but it's also vastly undercounting the amount of Jewish philanthropy there is, right? And if we sort of understood Jewish philanthropy to be supporting the things that Judaism supports, then we could say, oh, look how, look how much Jews are giving to Jewish philanthropy. It's so amazing. But instead, we see it as this very parochial question of how much of their money are they giving to specifically Jewish organizations? And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about whether they're foundations or people that are just thinking and are saying, well, yeah, what it means to support Judaism is to support 
Jewish education, Jewish organizations, you know, and, and I'm thinking a little bit, it's, it's like a teach a man to fish and he fishes for a lifetime kind of thing. But ultimately, you have to also say that once the people start fishing, we're, we're really excited about that. They don't necessarily have to stay in the fishing school for the rest of their life. You know, there's some some version of that that, that I, I feel like maybe we could try to work through and clarify a little bit. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think that the, that the fishing analogy has gotten, I don't know if you've, you've heard that, that, right? Is it give a, give a person, a, give a man a fish, eats for a day, teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime, uh, teach him to organize and he can ensure that the, you know, power plant upstream doesn't pollute the water. Like there's, there's, a, there's a lot of places to go with that. I'd say that our lens is to take a very long view of history. At the very, very high level, I think we totally agree with you, Dan, that uh, that giving to a hospital, giving to secular organizations fighting for human rights and for civil rights and for racial justice, we would argue are all manifestations of a set of Jewish values and Jewish sensibilities that have been honed and cultivated over millennia. Um, and where, where we're, I'd say, intervening or thinking about intervening is that those things don't happen automatically. Right. The, the cultivation of the Jewish sensibilities and the Jewish values that inform those kinds of choices and the ways that uh, we hope Jews will kind of take up the cause of justice and to take up the role, their role in civil society and in a democracy and in, uh, in pursuing the good um, is a product of a wisdom tradition, a wisdom tradition that generations and generations of teachers and students have cultivated and built. And we are the beneficiaries, the inheritors of that wisdom tradition. And if we don't attend to it, right, if we don't focus on, pay attention to and cultivate it um, and continue to add to it, you know, some generations, hence, it won't be available as the source of influence that we know it needs to be to inform the choices to both invest in Jewish education and to invest in hospitals and human rights and the pursuit of justice. But it feels to me like and, and I know that you don't have to affirm my sort of critical take, but it feels to me like the implicit goal of the majority of Jewish philanthropy today is some version of trying to keep Jews at the margin Jewish. In other words, it's, it's very inward looking. It's very much saying it's, it's survivalist. It's saying, you know, what we're really facing is a crisis of, you know, call it assimilation, whatever. And we're trying to hold on to these people so that they won't go away. It feels to me like when, when that's your goal then the work is going to be very uh, thin in the sense that it's really just trying to kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like if you have, you know, a million balls in the air and you're just trying not to drop them. So you're just going faster and faster and faster and you're not really doing anything to change the dynamic as opposed to saying something like the goal of a Jewish philanthropy is to build a more attractive form of Judaism that might take a very long time, right? It might be a long view, might be hundreds of years, but that the fundamental problem that we have is that Judaism is not working, or perhaps that the real fundamental problem that we have is that people think that Judaism is just parochial and they're not interested in that. They want to have an impact on the whole world, you know, and they're like, but why would I be involved with that thing? It's just so parochial and small. And so, of course, the, the solution would be to say that if we can make it really big and really meaningful and really involved in all the issues that you care about, climate change, hunger, then you would be attracted to Judaism. But somehow it, it seems that a more fundamental change is needed to get there. And I guess my question is whether the processes that we have in place, the organizations that we have in place now are capable of doing it? Or is it more that we need some kind of third wave that would 
replaced fe- foundations in the way that foundations replaced the federations, which, of course, they didn't completely replace them. They just a, a new thing came up that was able to take on that that role. I'm curious how you think about that. The call really is to a diversity of solutions. Jewish continuity, the survival of the Jewish people is a wicked problem, right? Like we are, we represent what, 0.2% of the global population in an era in which we lose a spoken language every two weeks because the last surviving speaker of that language goes away, right? We don't know how to stop gentrification or if we should, we don't know how to preserve the like local mom and pop coffee shop in the face of Starbucks uh, or you know local businesses in the face of Amazon. I think we're in an era of intense global homogenization. And so what do fringe or marginal or boutique or niche religious traditions or wisdom traditions do under those circumstances? I don't, I don't have a clear idea of what the solution is. I imagine that some of it is about... Um, Uh, intense experimentation. I imagine some of it is about maintenance and sustenance of the things that have historically worked. It's not only a survival strategy, but a multidimensional strategy for maintaining a vibrant and healthy and meaningful Judaism as a contributing voice in the choir of human civilization, not to be too grandiose. So the approach you just brought around analogizing I don't know, preservation of Jewish civilization to like gentrification in the face of homogeneity is really fascinating to me. I have to like sit with that. And I, I'm just saying this not because I have like a an immediate thought, but because I think listeners, hey, out there, like that's a really interesting way to think about this. And I, my initial instinct is that I would push back in certain ways, but I think that I'd encourage everybody to think about like, in what ways is the project of whether it's preserving or continuing or adapting Judaism similar to what folks do in a neighborhood, trying to preserve, adapt, continue the character of those neighborhoods in the face of corporations, et cetera. Okay. So I'm just thankful to you for bringing that up because I think it opens up a lot of questions for me. Um, New thing or related thing, or new old thing. Judaism likes things that are new and old at the same time. Um, Lippmann Camphor has a framework that we've talked about on the podcast in the past, which is Jewish sensibilities. And I deeply value that framework. And so I wanna, I wanna jump there a little bit. Its origins are fascinating to me because I think they actually reflect a deeply Jewish sensibility, which is Vanessa Oakes had a, an article where she said, hey, I think we should approach Judaism through this lens of Jewish sensibilities. Here's 10 of them. And what Libin Camphor did is said, yes, absolutely. There are 10 Jewish sensibilities, specifically the 10 of them. They are, a bunch of them are different from what you said, Vanessa Oaks, but here's our take. And to me, that's like, that reminds me of how like everybody agreed there were 613 commandments in the, in the Torah, but everybody yelled at each other about which they actually were. So that's a fun starting point, but you do have... 10, specifically 10, which to me, you know, calls to the 10 commandments, calls to all 10 makes a minion, makes a prayer quorum. Like there's all sorts of ways in which 10 of something is a little, I don't know, shout out dog whistle in the positive sense that something is really important. You have 10 Jewish sensibilities and you can see them on the Lippmann Camphor website. If you're listening at home, it's in our show notes, go and look at it. But I think they're really interesting. And one of them I wanted to call out specifically because it played mind games with me. You mentioned that Lippmann Camphor's project is not about creating a specific relationship to Israel, to the state of Israel. That's not what your goal is. 
one of the 10 Jewish sensibilities is Israel or Yisrael. But if you click on it, it's not at all about the state of Israel. It's about wrestling with God, which is to say the, the, the translation of the word Yisrael in Torah. And I so appreciated the playful. I, I mean, I don't know. I read a like playfulness in there where it's like, ah, yes, we are relating deeply to Israel. It's not in the way that you necessarily first thought. It's, look, I'm not saying Lippmann Camper like does nothing related to the state of Israel. It's just that it's a different framework. And so that's one example of how I think these sensibilities, the idea that a core Jewish activity or way in the world is to wrestle with God as opposed to the core Jewish value or Jewish thing is relationship to Israel. To me, that difference gets at a broader difference in how Jewish sensibilities manifest versus how frameworks of maybe Jewish values, Jewish ideas manifest. Because I'll tell you, whenever I see Jewish values, I get a little nervous. So what are those Jewish sensibilities? Am I off my rocker with how much I'm intellectualizing them? Or is there something deep there? Um, no, I think there is something deep there. I will say that that I think we we did ourselves a disservice by listing 10 in a way for exactly the reason that you just called out, Lex. One of the, uh, the I think, the profound messages of Vanessa Oak's original article was that the framework she was putting forward was a descriptive, not a prescriptive framework. Jewish sensibilities were an effort to distill out and say, you know, what are what are some of the qualities that lots of Jews display that may be attributable, at least in part, to their Jewishness, which is, you know, different, I think you're right, from a Jewish values framework, which is a normative one, right? This is, these are things that are the good. The Jewish sensibilities framework was, huh, like lots of Jews display certain sets of qualities, not all Jews, but there are a lot of them, and some of them are sort of distinctively Jewish, and I think when we kind of codified 10, uh, we started to veer over toward uh, sounding like we were being normative. Like these are the 10 sensibilities you ought to have if you're a good Jew. And I think we've actually over the last several years been, uh, been shifting back toward more of a, a framework of curiosity around the sensibilities, a, sen- you know, a, a, a set of questions around what are the what are the qualities or the sensibilities that uh, that are common or that are common features of of Jews, and how do we understand or interpret the reasons for those things emerging? And I'll add to that that one of the things that we've had to reckon with is because that framework is descriptive, not prescriptive, there are negative ones, right? Like all the, the 10 that are on the that are on the website are all like pretty positive, wrestles with God and and you know, simcha, joy, fun, like celebration, even shvira, brokenness, right, is a is about vulnerability, things that we have come to value. You know, we haven't put up on the website uh, whatever sensibility would emerge out of the shvocha matcha part of the Haggadah, right? The part of the Haggadah in, in Pesach, in Passover, when uh, we call on God to pour out God's wrath on our enemies, right? But wrathfulness is a Jewish sensibility. Defensiveness is a Jewish sensibility. Uh, xenophobia shows up as a Jewish sensibility. I could ask my grandparents the way that they talked about people of color, right? Like there, that, was, that was deeply embedded in their deeply Jewish lives. 
I love what you just said. Okay, I'm I'm flashing back to a, a different episode. I mentioned Lila Corwin Berman before. I, um, a different episode that came up recently was we had Rachel Mikva on the show, and she wrote a book called Dangerous Religious Ideas. And one of my favorite parts of our conversation was with her was that she talked about the value of specifically learning with people of other religious traditions, each tradition's worst texts, each tradition's worst things, and what you're celebrating and amplifying is the value of saying, wow, yeah, there are Jewish sensibilities and they're not all great. And it it ties into ancient things. It's not just, you know, a hundred years ago, we woke up and like decided to be X way. Like we actually have enshrined cultural civilizational things that can lead us astray sometimes. And that's not to say that we're evil. Every society, every tradition has such things. Um, I want to carry it forward because I actually think this project, at first my instinct is like, yes, we should make the separate lists of all the negative sensibilities. Like, let's, And then my next thought was, well, actually, well, actually, Lex, in my head, maybe it's one project. Like maybe it's actually that there's sensibilities and they can be they can be vectored in either a negative direction or a positive direction. And I'm thinking right now of a Jewish sensibility that happens to be getting some news coverage lately. I'm thinking about how there are, and we talked with Sarah Bean and Benor about this. There, there's, there's American Jewish conversational patterns that seem, according to a variety of sociolinguists, to transcend geographies within America in to certain extents and even to transcend ages, like generations, sometimes, not only, not always. But, um, and I love them. My instinct is, wow, interrupting each other is not really interrupting. It's a way people show love and it's a way people show that they're deeply listening to the person that they're talking to because in interrupting, it's not that they're cutting the person off. It's that they're doing their own like commentary, Jewish, like they're, they're excited, they're energized and it's a way of showing love. And that's how like my family growing up related to interrupting. We did it all the time. I also clearly recognize that there are contexts where interrupting people is disruptive and annoying and problematic. And it can even perpetuate societal oppressions when it turns out, you know, mostly men do the interrupting of women. Um, it, like there's all sorts of ways that we should be more thoughtful about this. But what a beautiful gift it would be if there was sort of one of the Jewish sensibilities being, I don't know what we call it, like overlapping is the linguistic term, like Jewish overlapping or Jewish argumenting or Jewish interrupting. And then we had both on the source sheet or on the resource list or on whatever. Here are all the ways that this sensibility can be refracted through lenses and become great. Here are all the ways it can become negative. Like that to me excites me in a way that Jewish values frameworks don't. So I like basically this is all to say I love what you just said. Can you say more of it? What what is there for us when we allow ourselves not to have this defensive posture? I think it actually relates to some of the continuity dynamics we talked about before. But like when we allow ourselves not to have this defensive posture around Judaism is always good. What opens up for us and what potentials can live? The way I think the way you framed it, which is really, really powerful, is that all characteristics or sensibilities or virtues, right, in under uh, uh, when taken to extremes are pathologized, right? Chosenness can be extraordinary. I mean, right, like we choose our, uh, you know, we, we, we choose partners, we choose 
countries in which to like make homes. We choose jobs. We like, we make choices about affiliations that are really, really powerful. When we, when we exercise chosenness as, as agents in ways that are exclusionary or hierarchical, right? They become, they become pathological. The values and, and maybe the exercise is uh, is like a, you know what would a, what would a a peoplehood wide cheshbon hanefesh kind of accounting of the soul look like in looking at Jewish at, at the Jewish sensibilities that we manifest and seeing what aspects of them are um, are powerful virtues that we want to cultivate and and double down on and what aspects of them are really problematic. So to me, it's a it's a, it's an orientation toward moderation that is woven throughout Jewish tradition, right? We don't, we're not a univocal tradition, but that m- multivocal tradition, the tradition of preserving the minority voice, um, the, I, I think the awareness that um, even in moments of great happiness, like a wedding, we, 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 we like retain a, a, a moment of tragedy by crushing a glass and in moments of great sadness, we still hold to, uh, to some, some degree of joy. I think all of that is part of a, a tradition that is, anti-fundamentalist at its core. And yeah, I think that that's, that's uh, I, I think another piece of the value of the way you framed the, the sensibilities framework, Lex. Just, it just so happens that the day that we're recording this, I, I was listening to an episode of a different podcast, the New York Times Daily podcast, that was about how the rollout of the, uh, of the COVID vaccine is going to go. And, you know, there's this whole Operation Warp Speed, which basically, as I understand it, they did all of this research into what they thought was going to work. And then once it reached a certain point, they put it into its testing phase. But they also started to ramp up production at the same time so that if it did succeed in the testing phase, it could be distributed immediately as opposed to then it has to go into this whole period of making it, which is going to take more and more months. And what that means is that if it didn't work in the test, then they were going to have put all this money into the production ramp up and they were going to have to throw it all away because it was a failure. And, you know, I think that since it turns out, as I understand it, that the initial ones have been successful, that nobody's really thinking about what would have been if it had been unsuccessful. And maybe there are unsuccessful ones that we don't know about that are all being wasted. But basically, it's an investment strategy that understands that a lot of our investment is going to be lost. But we do it this way because it's the only way to actually get the get the benefit that we're trying to achieve. And it just makes me wonder, like, what would Jewish philanthropy look like if it worked that way? For example, the way that that you talk about the Jewish wisdom tradition and the importance of it, it's not just, I mean, there's probably every every society whose language is lost, like you were just talking about, it's a, it's a tragedy when that society is lost. They also had a wisdom tradition and a lot to potentially give the world. But if we think that the Jewish wisdom tradition is so valuable that if it were to be lost or even not lost, but just kind of underutilized, it would be a, a real loss for the world. Like that's a really important thing. As opposed to if, you know, Joe Cohen is no longer involved in the Jewish community, you know, meaning that we're, we're spending all of this money to try to make sure that these Joe Cohens of the world, you know, don't uh, drift off and, and just kind of become secular or whatever, you know, and, and we're not really spending, I don't think, uh, or, or we're not oriented towards the kind of the moonshot that says, hey, how could we really solve this problem? How could we really reimagine, you know, if, if we're in a time like the, after the destruction of the Second Temple, we're like, well, 
that we know actually from history that there are all these different versions of Judaism. And one of them, rabbinic Judaism, kind of made it. There were all these other ones that, that didn't make it. I'm thinking about what would it have been like to be a foundation at that time in history and how what would you have done? You know, and I and I think that most of the foundations would probably have invested in the priesthood to try to help them improve the curriculum for priest training so that we could try try to really save temple Judaism in the hopes that maybe some at some point we'll be able to build the temple, you know, and would have put all the eggs in that basket. So what I'm what I'm wondering is what might it look like or is it possible or is it just that the resources aren't really there to take those kinds of gambles in the world of Jewish philanthropy? I guess I'm more sanguine. I kind of think we are. I mean, we again, we represent 0.2% of the global population. I might be off by even uh, an order of magnitude. I'm not off by an order of magnitude, but I might be off by a two x factor, right? And we have uh, in we have we have established two centers in which we are experimenting dramatically with uh, like what Judaism can be. One of them is a sovereign nation on one side of the planet, and the other one is a massive multicultural, multiracial, cosmopolitan experiment in democracy in which we play a disproportionately large role, like. That to me is a huge risk hedging strategy in in each of those two places. And and we've like scattered satellite versions. And here I'm I'm not talking about like some master plan, right? There's no there was no star chamber of uh, of of elders of Zion in the 19th century who like scoped this whole thing out. Right. This thing has emerged in each of those centers. There's a huge range of experimentation going on in all sorts of aspects of what it means to be Jewish. Yes, I'd say the bulk of the resources, as is always the case, go toward um, conservation and the, the, like the conservative impulse. But there are significant resources being directed toward experimentation and in lots of different ways. I mean, my goodness, we have Jewish priestesses, we have eco-Jews, we have Jews whose primary focus is on food. We've got Orthodox feminists. I mean, I like the. I, I'm, I'm saying these things like I could ever come up with a comprehensive list that would display the diversity and creativity and generativity of, uh, of, of the Jewish of Jewish civil society just in the United States, uh, but but also around the world. I think like we're actually in a space of multiple moonshots, and and I'm I, I would certainly be nervous about any claim that there was one. So yes, point taken. I, I think where I'm going is like I talked to a lot of those organizations that you mentioned. You know, they all talk about how they are vastly underfunded. I think that what I really just wanted to ask about in terms of what you think is uh, whether, for example, what we're looking at with COVID has this been a positive test of the world of Jewish philanthropy or or not, or, you know, the jury's out. I, I'm thinking also because there's a third geography, right, that you talked about Israel and you talked about the United States, but there's also the internet. And maybe it's self-serving to say this. I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about how we feel like this is a migration to cyberspace and we're among the first people on the boat. You know, we were early there and we're, we're here in this, you know, far off land. And it feels like, you know, it, it, it's not clear that that's yet recognized by the world of Jewish philanthropy. And it, you would think that COVID would be the wake up call about the importance of cyberspace. And I haven't seen it. And so I'm curious whether maybe I'm just it's there and I and I haven't seen it or I'm concerned that or, or, or maybe that the way that folks are looking and maybe they're right is to look at COVID as just a blip 
as opposed to the way that I look at COVID, which is either as a destruction level event that the whole the future is going to be vastly different on the other side of it, or a signal of something that was already happening, the destruction level event already happened long ago, which has to do with the sort of non-geographical future of, of Judaism or of the importance of the internet, similar to the printing press causing the Protestant Reformation, all those kind of things. And, and you know, again, my question is whether that there's that futurism going on in the world of philanthropy that is potentially not only supporting things that are uh, sparking up on on the ground, but that's actually sort of driving it in the way that I, I think that you are driving this idea of the wisdom tradition, the sensibilities, right? Meaning that I think Lippmann Camphor Foundation, more so than almost any other foundation, is actually driving a particular perspective. But I'm wondering why we don't see other found, too many other foundations that are really driving a, a very particular sort of futurism worldview. I mean, I would be hesitant to characterize us as as futurists, and you know, I'd say, uh, you know, I'm I'm one player in the constellation of Lumen Cantor Foundation for Living Torah, but I'm I'm not a revolutionary. I'm an incrementalist. Um, I think destruction level events are things we ought to try really, really hard to avoid. So, you know, uh, yes, it's true the destruction of the temple gave us rabbinic Judaism, and that was great, but it might not have worked out, right? And I think that there are a lot of other wisdom traditions that have gone by the wayside of history, not because they didn't set up their yavna, right? They didn't, like, successfully do that thing, but because circumstances conspired to annihilate them. You know, I think we could, could we argue about the, like, where on the margins the investment in cyberspace ought to go? Yes, I think that that's a, I think that that's a good and rich conversation. But I think that the costs of, like, the jury, again, the jury's out on what that migration is going to look like. The jury's out on how much of the shift to online learning, online engagement is going to be, it's going to be sticky over the long run. I don't know. I think the, uh, there's a, there's a lot of room for experimentation. I think a lot of experimentation is happening and I don't think we know what the end game is and imagining that we are sure it feels like a, it feels like a mistake to me. I really appreciate the utterance of the phrase. I am an incrementalist. Um, I'm not an incrementalist. I, I am more, I, I don't want to like appoint myself. Ah, I'm, I'm a revolutionary. I'm the revolution. Like I am a revolutionary. And I think our podcast takes a revolutionist, if that's a word, now it is, posture and not an evolutionist one. So this is like a good check-in moment. That said, I, I'm struck by the fact that you say that and your foundation from our perspective aligns with that futurist project, that revolutionary project in such a deep way when other, I'm not saying like specifically Jewish philanthropies, but when other projects who don't even think of themselves as as incrementalists, they think they're being more revolutionary sometimes, or they think they're at least somewhere in the middle, like those projects don't always align as deeply with us. And so I'm, I'm struck by that because you wouldn't maybe expect that somebody who starts a response with "I'm an incrementalist" would be very would be the, the first guest in a in a series of podcasts on the podcast that very definitively identifies as not incrementalist. <laughs> so that's that's one thought. I mean, can I can I speak to that? I, like, I- yeah, the, the, yeah. The only other thing that I'd ask as we close the episode is, I really trust your impulses. What what are what are we missing in being 
very firmly on that revolutionist, revolutionary side of the equation. What aren't we missing? What do you appreciate about that impulse that we might be bringing? Um, yeah, help us out. I, I don't think you need any help. I think it's good that there are revolutionaries, right? I think that I, I like I and I, I think this is a theme that's run through this whole conversation. I'm I'm a, a believer in diverse ecosystems. I'm like the furthest thing from an Orthodox Jew. Um, and I'm like really glad that there's a vibrant Orthodox tradition. And I think that's like, that is really important. I am, uh, I am an incrementalist. Revolutions make me very nervous as a, not as a historian, but as, as a student of history, I feel like the times in our history when we've had significant revolutions, there's been a lot of blood in the streets, both metaphorically and literally. But I think that the creativity and generativity and demand for change that revolutionaries provoke uh, are incredibly valuable in the context of a multidimensional civilization and ecosystem. Now, to go back to your to go back to your earlier question about like you know what gives that uh, you know that that this that, that Lipman Camper Foundation for Living Torah you've characterized as one that has this futurist orientation in a way, and this isn't a dodge. In a way, it's a bit of a semantic question, right? Like we are holding a mantle that we think about. Uh, inside of a diverse contemporary ecosystem, but also inside of a like multi-thousand year long tradition, right? Like we think of ourselves as inheritors of a many, many thousand year old tradition. And we have to be responsible to that past. And we are the ancestors of many generations, hopefully many, many generations of uh, inheritors of that tradition. And we've got this like funny little, you know, we're like the little thin spot in an hourglass or a, a filter trying to figure out how can we be responsible inheritors and responsible ancestors at the same time? I don't know. Is that, is that revolutionary? Is that futurist oriented? It feels to me like um, that's uh, just an acknowledgement of our place in the very, very long sweep of history period and of Jewish history in particular. That's the place we're most comfortable being. That's a great note to end on. I I hope we're all thinking about that framework of responsible inheritors and responsible ancestors. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, I dream sometimes of a world where we wouldn't only have the phrase, ancestors are rolling over in their graves, but also would have the phrase, I, I like that phrase for certain purposes, but we'd also have the phrase, our grandchildren will one day be rolling over in theirs, or I, I don't know. I don't know what it would but something like that. Um, thank you so much, Aaron Dorfman, for this conversation. You've opened up a lot of questions that we're going to be wrestling with in this unit, but even beyond this just sort of Jewish philanthropy set of topics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the conversation. And thanks, of course, to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. Two brief shout outs before we go. We want to encourage you to check out some of our past episodes of Judaism Unbound that feature Lippmann Camper Foundation for Living Torah. You can check them out by going to, I mean, you can go to Google, but you can go to our website, whatever works. Episode 37 of Judaism Unbound features Lee Moore and Jonathan Wucher, may his memory be a blessing, who were early guests on Judaism Unbound. And also we have episode 172 featuring Ayalon Eliach, a staff member for Lippmann Camper Foundation for Living Torah. So if you liked this one, you'll like those too. There's lots of good stuff to learn. Okay, one last shout out before we go. Our Geltraiser, our Hanukkah fundraiser is 
just as Dan said at the top, underway. It started yesterday, and it's going throughout the duration of Hanukkah 2020. And we hope that you will spend it with us. We hope that you will join. You can do so at geltraiser.com, and then you'll be able to come and hang out with us, with all our guests, and it's going to be a blast. And it already has been a blast. It's so many blasts, all of it. Um, Last thing, we really do appreciate when you are in touch with us, and there's a wide variety of ways for you to do that. You can head to our Facebook page or our Instagram or our Twitter. All of those are Judaism Unbound. That's the name of our different pages and handles. You can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. You can go to our email addresses, or I guess more accurately, email us at our email addresses, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.